you'd like to turn in your Bibles to Job chapter 2, it's on page 417 of the ESV Pew Bibles, if you turn to Job chapter 2, that's where we're going to be reading from and hearing a message from this morning, so we're going to be looking at the entire chapter, 1 through 13. Job chapter 2, and this is again right at the beginning of our sermon series through this book of Job. And at the end of today, that will wrap up the narrative and we'll be delving in to a very long section of dialogue between Job and his three friends. And ultimately, we're going to hear from God. Let's go to the Lord prayer again. Father, as we approach your word this morning, we, we come in faith. We come as your assembled church expectantly. Father, we know this is part of your ongoing provision for us. You have designated one day in seven to be the Lord's day in which you command your people to gather for worship in order to pray, bring gifts, tithes, and offerings, sing, and hear the word of God authoritatively proclaimed. So Father, we ask that as we approach your word this morning, you give us the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit, help us understand the true meaning of this passage, and then help us to apply the truths that you show us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a high schooler named Aaron, and like all high schoolers, he was required to take so many credit hours of physical education in order to graduate. So he decided that he would take an elective. He would take a weight and resistance training course. So he, along with some other students, signed up for this class. And at the beginning of the semester, they all took baseline measurements, how much they could lift, and the various exercises. And then at the end of the semester, it was max out day. And that was the day they were going to measure the difference between what they could lift on day one with what they could lift on the last day. So it was max out day, and all the students were to do their best. And there are really two approaches to this. One was, one strategy, for example, for for bench pressing was to do a couple really quick, light weight warm-up reps, and then slowly add on weight, do one rep, add on another, or excuse me, add on some more weight, do another rep, a few more weights, another rep, and that way it would slowly build up to the max. And um, you you could progress there in a kind of more relaxed manner, and you weren't overwhelmed right away. That's one strategy. Aaron decided to go for the other strategy. The other strategy was to do a couple of warm-up reps with really low weight and then go ahead and throw on everything at once. And the idea here is based on what I have been tracking with so far, this is the maximum amount of weight that I think I can that I think I can accurately and, and you know successfully lift. And Aaron's thinking was, why would I go the first way? Because as you're doing that, you're fatiguing your muscles. You're really going to never know how much you could really lift. So he said, go ahead and throw it all on. So he put on the maximum amount of weight. And he had two people standing on each end of the bar, spotters, and they lifted it off and they they had him hold it. And he, he went down okay. And of course, that's the easy part. And then he went to push it up. And it was going very slowly, maybe an inch, inch and a half, two inches and it stopped, and then his arms 
began to wobble and the bar began to shake and slowly it started going down. And the spotters were instructed not to help unless called upon and he, he, wait, he waited until it actually hit his chest and, and then let out a help and they were able to lift it up off of him. It was too much to handle. Aaron had guessed what his maximum weight he could act successfully lift, and he guessed wrong. It was too much. Sometimes life is like that. Sometimes life gets so demanding, it feels like someone's stacking on weight after weight at the end of our, our bar, and work is demanding, and Home life is demanding, and uh, the stressors enter in, um, things that are out of our control, and it just feels like it becomes too much to handle. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt like you, you, you think for one moment you can handle it, but then it starts to come down, and it's too much? But is it? Specifically, I want us to think about temptation this morning. You, you may have been told that everybody has a breaking point. You, you may have heard it said that if you, if you stack enough plates on the end of the bar of, of temptation, eventually everybody gives in. Is that true? When we read Job chapter 2, we see him experiencing the second wave of temptation. We called it the tsunami of suffering, or the, the tidal wave of tragedy. And this is the second wave that's going to hit him. He's already been hit by the first wave. And he's going to feel the second wave very acutely. And it looks like the suffering that Job experiences is too much to handle. From, from any kind of outside observer, we, we're going to read this and we're going to think, I don't know how anybody could handle that. That looks like too much. And remarkably, Job does not curse God. In other words, it, it seems like it's too much to handle, but it's not. Job actually pulls this off. He resists the temptation, he does not give in, and he does not curse God. Job passes the test this morning at the end of chapter 2. So the question becomes, do we have a breaking point where all temptation becomes too much to handle? In other words, is it true that everyone, if given enough time, if given enough pressure, if, if, if everything is, is working against, it, against us, is there a point at which sin is inevitable when it comes to temptation? We're going to answer that question this morning, and we're going to look to Scripture, not only this passage, but a couple of supplemental Scripture passages from the New Testament. Let's take a look at this chapter. It's only 13 verses, but remember, this is the second wave. He's already gone through quite a bit. So here's Job chapter 2, starting at verse 1. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered, my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? 
he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come and show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him to the, on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. So if you remember from last week, and, and you're looking at the beginning, and you're thinking, oh, deja vu, these, these verses sound very familiar. Yes, they are almost an exact repeat of what we saw in chapter 1, beginning at verse 6. So, once again, we have this strange meeting between God and, and the angels and Satan in the heavenly realm. Once again, God asks Satan, where have you come from? And remember, it's not because God doesn't know the answer or that there's something that escapes him. No, he's asking because Satan is being called on to report to God. God's in charge. And once again, Satan answers with this vague and non-specific answer. Where, where were you? Oh, out. What were you doing? Oh, stuff. And we remember from last week, evil stuff. Evil stuff. He's the tempter. He's the deceiver. He's the one that's persecuting the church. And once again, God asks Satan if he has considered Job. And then God lists off the blameless descriptors that emphasize Job's character. He's blameless. He's upright. He fears God. Turns away from evil. Now, if you're keeping count, this is now the third time in, on the first page of Job that all four of those character characteristics are listed off. We had one by the narrator, then we had one by God, now here's the second one by God. Again, the author is trying to make sure that we understand that as all these things happen to Job, it is not because he did something wrong. This is, God, this is not God paying Job back or punishing Job for some wrong or some evil he did. Three times we are told on the opening page of Job, that's not it. So we can be sure um, we don't go down that road. And then in verse uh, 3, at the end of verse 3, we finally get some, some new material here. Job is still faithful. He still holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Um, this is a dig against Satan. This is God saying, oh, look at Job. He's still faithful. 
Even though you asked me about the, even, yeah, even though you, you did all that, yeah, look at Job. He's still blameless. He's still upright. He's still turning from evil. There was no reason to take everything away from Job. Again, are we getting the picture yet? It's not because he did something wrong. There's no reason that all this should have come against him. And then verses 4 and 5, we see uh, Satan's response, and we have to ask ourselves again, did we think Satan was going to admit he was wrong? He was wrong, wasn't he? Do you think Satan was going to admit that? Do you think he was going to say something like, yeah, you were right, God. Um, You incited me, or I incited you against him, and he did okay. It seems like he's still faithful. I guess he really does love you. I guess he really does serve you for who you are. Um, I took everything away and he still worships you. No. No. Satan does not admit defeat. He glosses over the outcome of the first attack. Instead, he issues another challenge. Skin for skin. What does that mean? Well, we've we've heard other phrases like that in the Bible. Not that phrase exactly, but there are a couple ways to go about this. I think the phrase that immediately follows it gives us a clue as to what skin for skin means. It says, all that a man has, he will give for his life. Skin for skin. It's kind of like uh, Lex Talionis, the, the law of retaliation. Uh, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Remember in the Old Testament, in dealing out justice, the only way to be perfectly fair if someone um, cut off your hand would to be cut off their hand. That, that is the, the ultimate fairness, um, this for that type of response. And so that's kind of along the same line, skin for skin. But in this context, we're saying that Job will gladly give up the lives of others for his life, skin for skin. He's willing to go down that road. He's willing to sacrifice his family and his wealth as long as he himself remains alive and remains untouched. He will still worship God because his own life remains protected. That's what Satan's trying to get at here. So really he's he's going along these lines. Satan's saying, well, yeah, that first that first test didn't really count. God. I mean if if you really want an accurate test you got to go after the person. We, we both know that that wasn't going to be enough. I don't know why I even tried that to begin with, honestly. That, that didn't work, so that doesn't really count. No, if you really want to test Job, you've got to go after his person. You've got to attack the man himself. If you do that, no way he stays faithful. He will curse you to your face, guaranteed. Guaranteed. Verse 6, God answers Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. In other words, God's saying, yes, you have permission, just don't kill the man. Verse 7, Satan struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And this has prompted many people to ask, well, what kind of disease was this? What, what did he contract or what, what is this that, that caused these loathsome sores? What kind of diagnosis would explain the physical suffering described here? Well, here's the thing. This isn't the only physical symptom Job has. As we make our way through the rest of the book, there are other verses in Job that tell us that it was more than just loathsome sores. Now, it wasn't less than loathsome sores, but it was more than that. So first, from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, he was covered with these, these painful 
sores, and I think we've all experienced having some kind of injury or sore on, on a sensitive place, like maybe, maybe the, the tip of your finger gets cut, and then for the rest of the day, everything you touch sends shooting pain up your hand, or maybe even just like the, the tip of your nose, and every time you touch it, it, it sends pain, or think about an eyelid or something like that. Now imagine your entire body. Every sensitive area on your body is covered with loathsome sores. His body was so diseased it became unrecognizable. Later in Job 2.12, we read that just a moment ago, his friends couldn't even recognize him. That's, that's how much the disease had, had ravaged his body. And it's more than just sores. <clears throat> These sores seem to, to itch, ooze, scab over. They were infected with worms. Job 7, verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 5. Uh, fever, Job 30, 30. Chills, Job 21, 6. Diarrhea, Job 30, 27. Inability to sleep, which is a huge quality of life issue, if you've ever experienced that. And then when he did sleep, terrifying and intensely real nightmares, Job 7, 14. Severe weight loss to the point of being emaciated, Job 19, 20. Just continual, excruciating, internal and external pain, Job 30, 17. And you can make a case for other symptoms too, as other people have. And in addition to those verses that I just quoted, some people have made the case for difficulty breathing, dark eyelids, strong bodily stench, bad breath, black and dead skin that fell from his body. And all these things weren't just you know, a 24-hour flu, or even a few days or even weeks. If we're following the timeline accurately, this is months. Months of all these things happening all the time, no relief. Would this be too much to handle? If we were experiencing this, would this be maybe too much weight on the end of the bar? Verse 8, he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in ashes. So sat in ashes, that's usually, we're, we're probably talking about an ash heap, a place where people go to dump all their, their refuse and burn it and, and dump all their ash and things like that. So outside the camp, outside the city, Job has, has separated himself from, from everyone else and he's sitting in this ash, ash heap uh, that's, that would explain why his friends could see him from a distance. He was, he was already outside the city where everybody else was, so they could see him as they approached the location, socially isolated, scraping himself with a piece of pottery. Have you ever had a, a really bad mosquito bite or a bug bite that just won't stop itching? And... Maybe you've heard an urban legend that says, well, if you, you scratch it, you, then, then the itch will go away. Or if you, you use your fingernail and you put an X on it, then, then it won't itch anymore or something like that. And the whole idea is if, if you make it painful enough, or, or sometimes it, we just resort to scratching until the top layer of the skin comes off and it's bleeding and it's painful. Well, at least it's not itching anymore. Now I can feel pain. I, yeah, but it's not itching I think that's what's going on here. Just some temporary relief from the incessant itching. A scrape here and there might take his mind off of it. Verse 9, Job's wife enters the picture. Uh, let's not get too excited here. This is, not a, this is not a help. This is not a positive. 
And her entrance into the, the scene and, and what she says serves a couple of purposes. Number one, it's another layer of temptation. It's another layer of temptation. Imagine the person closest to you in your hour of greatest need turning on you. Instead of being a source of support and constant uh, emotional um, help, they turn on you. He's already experienced this onslaught of temptation to give up and throw in the towel, to abandon God. Don't worry about responding with a God-going response at this point, Job. I think that ship has sailed. You don't have to worry about honoring him anymore. So the person closest to him verbalizes or gives voice to the very temptation, the very goal that Satan has set out to accomplish. Satan wants him to curse God and die. What does his wife say? Do it. Do it. Curse him and die. Curse him. This is not helping. This is another layer of temptation. It's over, Job. You're done. Time to pull the plug. Just get it over with. Because whatever you're doing is not working. And I think the thinking here is that if you go ahead and outright curse God, then he's going to smite you and, and bring you to an end. And at least this won't be going on anymore. Just give up. Do it. So it's another layer of temptation. But number two, it's also another layer of suffering. The, the person that, that we usually look to for the most support, the person who knows us the best, turned on it. That's, that's another layer of suffering. For sure, on an emotional level. Is this too much to handle yet? Is the bar crushing his chest yet? No, his wife's counsel was not godly counsel, so he rebukes her in verse 10 and says, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. So this is keying in on uh, the fool says in his heart there is no God. Psalm 53, the fool says in his heart there is no God. So only uh, a fool would deny the existence of God, would try to suppress that truth and, and deny that God's there. So to curse God is a form of denial, it's a form of rebellion. So that's where Job's coming from. He's saying, no, that, that would be very foolish to curse God and to deny him. And so it's A, a refusal to accept her, her counsel, but B, I also think this is an attempt of Job to, to teach his wife. Uh, it's an attempt to correct her. See, I think this is actually an expression of care because of what he says next. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? So he's teaching her this truth. He understands that God is the sender. We looked at that last week. And here it is again. Shall we receive good from God? God is the sender. And shall we not receive evil? God's still the sender. God's still first cause. It's through the agency of Satan that God is in charge. So he's teaching his wife it would be foolish to curse God to, to be in that category. Instead, the proper response is to accept all things from God. If we know who the sender is, then we don't necessarily need to know the answer to the why question. No, this doesn't make sense, but I know God is in charge, he's on his throne, and I am going to accept it. 
He understands that God is asunder. And then it says, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. And remember that Jesus taught that what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. Matthew 15, 18, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. So by, by telling us that in all this, Job did not sin with his lips, he's saying at the heart level, Job is, is, is doing it. He's passing the test. In fact, he has done it. This is a summary verse. In all this, responding to the two waves of suffering, Job did not sin. Now, the rest of the book is going to deal primarily with that why question. The rest of the book is going to be these guys trying to make sense of it. But this is where Job passes the test. So I think that's also helpful, and it's a key to understanding the book of Job. He's not perpetually on trial. It's not through the rest of the chapters of the book we're wondering how this is going to turn out. Is he going to pass the test? Is he going to stay righteous? No, it tells us he didn't sin. He passed. So test passed. Congratulations, Job. You did it. He survived. He took the double wave of suffering and the temptation to curse God and he remained steadfast. He remained faithful. And so ultimately, we have to say that the temptation to curse God was not too much to handle for Job. Remarkably. He, he, he pushed the bar all the way up. It, he, he did it. He passed the test. Verses 11 through 13, these are kind of the last, uh, this is the last section in the chapter, and these are the three friends being introduced. So this sets us up for the extended dialogue that's going to happen. Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, they all came to visit Job so that they could show him sympathy and comfort him. That may have been their original intent, but as we're going to see, they don't always show him sympathy or comfort him. So this has been going on for a while. So it would have taken some time for this news to reach their ears, and then it would have taken them some time to make the journey and now sit with them. So this has been going on for a while, and that explains why they couldn't recognize him. His body was already being transformed by the disease. And when they show up, they display all kinds of the trademark grief and sorrow uh, signs, raised their voices and wept, tore their clothes, clothes excuse me, robes, sprinkled dust on their heads, so all these things are expressions of, of grief, of sorrow, and, and of mourning. Sat with him for seven days and seven nights. This is also a sign of mourning, usually. It's a, it's a typical mourning period, seven, seven days, about a week's length. So it's almost as if they're, they're not saying a word to him right now. It's almost as if they're sitting with him because they're trying to be with him during his final days. It looks like he's not going to make it. And that's, that's where our chapter ends. Too much to handle. So in some ways, chapter 2 is a repeat of chapter 1. We saw that at the beginning with the repetition of verses. In some ways, this is kind of 2.0 for, for, the, for the suffering. We had the, the loss of everything, his, every, all his possessions, his children. And then this time it was the loss of his health and intense physical suffering. And so there was wave number one and wave number two. And so in some senses, the message is kind of the same thing, and that is that God is the sender, therefore we can give a God-glorifying response. We don't have to know the why. We don't have to have the why question answered. 
So we see that Job, once again, even under intense suffering, was determined to accept the bad along with the good. He accepted the, the pleasure along with the pain. He accepted the success along with the ruin. He accepted the, the health along with the sickness. How could Job pull this off? Because by all appearances, this seems like too much to handle. Remember, he's, he's already gone through the loss of everything. Imagine just for a moment, everything you own, gone. All your property, all your money, all your accounts, all your investments, you have zero dollars. You have nothing. And your children were removed. They were killed on the same day, all at once, suddenly, tragically. And now you have this intense suffering, physical pain. Remember, there are no doctors here. There is no imaging. There are no antibiotics. There is no treatment. He had no hope of surviving. That seems like a pretty heavy bar to put up. But he pulled it off. Oh yeah, and, and your wife whispering in your ear, do it, do it giving voice to the very temptation that Satan was shooting for. How did he pull it off? The answer is because as intense as it was, this temptation was not too much to handle. It wasn't. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That you may be able... To endure it. This tells us that there is no situation, no set of circumstances, no life scenario, no bar too heavy where the temptation is so great that we must sin. In other words, there is no temptation too much to handle. Now, we don't always take the way of escape. Please hear me. I'm not saying that if you're a really strong Christian, there's no way you should ever fall to temptation. I'm not saying that. I think we all understand that. What I am saying is, God's word tells us there's always a way of escape. God's word tells us that there is no such thing as a temptation too much to handle. Now, sometimes we don't handle it. But the temptation itself, unless we're prepared to say God's word isn't true, it says, he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability that you may be able to endure it, he will also provide a way of escape every time, every time. This is key to understanding temptation and our response to it. This is more than I can handle. No, it isn't. I just can't handle this any morning. Yes, you can. We, we shouldn't ever reach that point where we just throw in the towel and say, oh, I'm just going to surrender myself to this temptation because, you know, it's inevitable. And that's, that's not what Scripture teaches. There's always a way of escape. James 4, 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Is that true or not? That's true. Too much to handle. It may seem like it, but our, our temptations that we face are never too much to handle, even though we sometimes give in to them. So here's, here's what we're going to do. In order to uh, fight against temptation, we need to have a couple things that we're, we're keeping in mind. So in our fight against temptation, it, it should be characterized by two things. Number one, it needs to be a fight. 
It needs to be a fight. We can't simply just kind of surrender ourselves to it and say, well, I guess this is that same road I've been down before. I know how this ends. I, I can't escape it. Yes, you can. It must be a fight, taking concrete steps to fight temptation. Uh, several years ago, and I don't remember when, but there was this uh, uh, show, and it was about teaching kids uh, gun safety. And so I believe it was sponsored by the NRA, and they had this catchy little tune, and it went something like this. If, if a child found accidentally a firearm, they should sing this song. Stop. Don't touch. Leave the area. Tell an adult. Stop. Don't touch. Leave the area. Tell an adult. It was very catchy. It had a nice little rhythm to it. It was very easy to, to pick up and memorize. And the kids did. And it, it is a good strategy for responding in that situation. Young children shouldn't be handling firearms, obviously. But if we think about it, that's a very good response to temptation. Stop. As soon as we have an awareness that we're being tempted, okay, this is it. I'm, I'm, I'm being tempted right now. Remember, temptation itself is not sinful. It's giving into the temptation that's sinful. When we're, so when we're aware of it, we stop. Don't touch. We're saying, okay, I recognize what's happening. Nope, I'm, I'm not going near there. I'm, I'm not going down that road. Leave the area which can mean literally physically removing ourselves from the, the temptation, but it also can mean mentally removing ourselves, spiritually removing ourselves from the temptation. Because okay? we're not children, we're adults. Okay? We can discipline ourselves. If, if we're thinking about something, we can take our mind off of that, and we can make ourselves think about something else. We can give ourselves over to something else, and then tell an adult. We can substitute that with tell a brother or sister. Because... Sin loves the dark, it loves secrecy, and if we're serious about fighting temptation, then we have another step to take, and that's telling somebody, telling a trusted brother or sister. Because once you shine light on it, once you get it out in the open, once somebody else knows about it, temptation has a peculiar way of weakening when it's out of the closet, out of the darkness, and into the light. Concrete steps. So it's got to be a fight. We need to fight it. And number two, we need to have a true mindset. Here's what I mean about true mindset. You remember Eeyore the donkey from Winnie the Pooh? He was this donkey that had droopy eyelids and he had a gray body and he always kind of moved really slowly. He was very negative and he, he talked slow. I think his favorite quote was, could be worse, not sure how, but it could be. He was always a downer, and you could count on him to always take the, the pessimistic, uh, glass-half-empty kind of viewpoint. If we are expecting to lose our fight against temptation, then chances are we're more likely to give into it. If we're walking around with a, well, here comes temptation, I guess there's nothing I can do about it, I know where this leads... I'll just try to get through it and ask God to forgive me later. No, it's true that temptation is going to come, but it's not true that we have to take this kind of Eeyore type of approach. Instead, a true mindset using Scripture, using 1 Corinthians 10.13. God is faithful. 
I'm not fighting temptation under my own power. God is faithful. God has promised me a way of escape. Where is it? Where is it? In the moment. Where is this way of escape that I may be able to endure it? Resist the devil. He'll flee from you. I'm going to resist the devil and watch him flee. That's the correct attitude. Not, well, I guess I have to go through with this, but I can beat this. I don't have to go down that road today. I'm, I'm not in bondage. I'm not imprisoned by this temptation so that sinning is inevitable. There is a way of escape. God has promised. I'm going to look for it and I'm going to take it. There's no temptation that is too much to handle. So we need to fight it. We need to discard that false Eeyore mindset and understand rightly that God is providing a way of escape. Well, for Job, this seemed like an unbeatable temptation. I mean, if remember, there's no way we could possibly put our shoe, put ourselves in the shoes of Job and really understand what was going on. We, we just weren't there. But I think we can kind of get an idea. We, we can get a fraction of understanding of what he was going through. He lost everything. Physically, ongoing, day after day of intense pain and suffering. Chronic, intense pain. No relief. There, was no, there were no medications. Okay. They, they did not give him something for the pain. I hope we understand that. And the temptation. The one that should be your biggest supporter whispering in your ear, do it. It seems like it should have been, by, by all appearances, it should have been too much to handle. It should have crushed his chest. But it didn't. No temptation is too much to handle. There is one thing that we cannot handle on our own. This is all good news. Scripture gives us uh, the ability to fight it in the right attitude. But there is one thing that will always be too much to handle no matter how much we fight it, no matter how much we bring to bear on it, and that is our salvation. Yes, our salvation is too much for us to handle. There is no way we can push that bar off our chest. In fact, God doesn't even want us to try to obtain salvation on our own. We had Vacation Bible School this past week, and one of the illustrations that was communicated to the children was a character named Rodney Roadrunner. And Rodney was a marathon runner, and in the beginning he didn't understand the, the way of salvation, and so he thought he could handle his own salvation. And so he ran with a backpack and in the backpack were various items that represented things. And this was a really good illustration for the kids. So he pulled out a, a bottle of water and he said, this is, this is baptism. Because I've heard, you know, if you're baptized, then that, that means you're saved and, and you're going to heaven. So I'm going to count on my baptism for, for my salvation. And they said, oh yeah, and I've also got this, uh, these books here. And he pulled out books and he says, this is knowledge. If I can just you know, get on this discipleship path and learn and learn and, and increase my theological knowledge and understanding of God and, and just be correct on a lot of things and, and show everybody how much I know, then that surely will be pleasing to God because I know more than anybody else. And at this point, the kids are saying, no, you hear the chorus of no's in the, in the, in the students. And he kept going and he pointed to some other things. He he brought out, uh, finally, this, this towel. Oh he, oh, he took out money. A big wallet full of money. He said, okay, this is, I know, this always works. 
He said, I'm going to give money to, to charitable organizations. I'm going to give lots of it to church and to this homeless shelter and to this hospital and to this uh, you know, children's fund. And surely God will smile upon me. And I know that because I've done the right thing with my money, God will let me in. And then finally, he, he pulled out a sweaty, stinky towel. And he said, yeah, this towel is the one that I've, I've, I've kind of mopped my brow with and, and wiped off my body after all the things I've done, after all my accomplishments, after all the races I've run, all the races I've won. And, and so I hold on to this because it reminds me of all the things that I have done for my Lord and Savior. And surely he will let me in on the day and judge me righteous because of everything I've done for him and how much I've sacrificed. And of course, none of those things work. And that was the message to the children. And that's the message we need to continually hear. It's not based on what we do or what we've done. It's based on Jesus Christ. And as believers, sometimes we hear these things and we say, yeah, I know all that. Well, we need to hear it again. And again. And again. Because... Believe it or not, sometimes it's possible to, to hear that and understand salvation by grace, uh, faith alone. Yes, I understand. It's not what I do to get in. And we say, yes, that's, that's necessary. I, I can't rely on myself to be saved. But now once I'm in, now once I'm in Christ, sometimes we entertain the message that, well, if you really want to stay in, now it is up to you. Don't blow it. And of course, that's not true either. We're saved by grace as we are brought into the kingdom of God and we are continued to be saved by grace. It's not what we do, but what has been done. Our sin is not too much to handle for Jesus. It is too much to handle for us, but not for Jesus. How do we know that? Because he's already dealt with it. He's already put the bar back up on the rack. Okay, it's over. Our sin was nailed to the cross. The blood of Jesus was the sufficient payment necessary for God to receive and to be able to rightly and justly count us as just and righteous in his sight. Not because of what we have done, but because of the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. He accepted the payment of Jesus' body and blood on the cross. That sacrifice was sufficient to cover all our sin, past, present, future. It's been done. God asks us to put our faith and trust in Jesus, not in ourselves, not in our good works, not in what we've done, but in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. And when we do that, he promises to give us his spirit as a guarantee that we are his, that he will continue the good work that he started in, on, in us, and it will continue all the way to the end. We will not only be justified or declared righteous in his sight, but we will also be sanctified our entire life. We will be glorified, which means we will be with him forever in a perfected state. Jesus took care of it. Jesus did it. That's why it's by faith. That's why we don't say we follow a religion. We follow a king. And his name is Jesus Christ. It's what he did, not what we do. So Job's temptation, who knew? Not too much to handle. He passed the test. 
He passed the test. And God promises us as well that there is no temptation that is too much for us to handle. We are to fight it. We are to discard any kind of Eeyore type of approach to it. Get a right, true mindset against it. Always a way of escape. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Amen. Father, we confess, first of all, that we don't always resist temptation. And you know our hearts. We're we're ashamed of that. We're sorry for that. We ask your forgiveness. And Father, at the same time, we refuse to go down that road of feeling sorry for ourselves or feeling that it's a a no-win situation. Father, we ask for the help of your Holy Spirit. Please fill us, enable us to fight and to keep fighting temptation, knowing that there is never going to be a temptation where you don't provide a way of escape. Father, we ask for your power, for your help, for your victory that Jesus already secured on the cross. To your glory, Lord. Amen.